I spent about a total of about a month and a half in Greece and about a month of that on the island of Lesbos, uh, documenting what was taking place in the largest refugee camp in Europe. And it's a camp called Moria, 20-minute bus ride from a city, actually. Um, and to paint kind of a, I don't know, a verbal picture for people, like it's set in like these olive groves. It's kind of this really beautiful area. I mean, think of like, I don't know, parts of Italy or um, the Levant in the Middle East, like Palestine, et cetera. Um, it's this kind of idyllic setting of like, it looks like rolling hills and, and olive groves. But in the middle of it is this camp that was formed from a converted former military base uh, that was outfitted to maybe temporarily accommodate maximum 3,000 people. And right now, the capacity there, the occupancy there is about 23,000. This episode is sponsored by Personal Revolution Podcast. Have you ever been stuck inside, wondering how to take control of your life? Is there something you want to do, but haven't been able to do it yet? Well, I got the podcast for you. In Personal Revolution, best-selling author and life coach Allison Task helps you take control of your life with inspiration and humor so that you move from where you are now to where you want to be and have fun doing it. It's like having a personal coach whispering in your ear. This three-month podcast course along with the bonus episodes each month, will help you create a clear vision for what you want out of your life. Remove the frustrating blocks that are holding you back. Develop a detailed action plan that will drive you to where you want to be and build the network that will help you create your future. The Personal Revolution podcast comes with a personal workbook and real-time access to a community of other changemakers working towards their goals with positivity, possibility, and momentum. And for a limited time, all of this is available to you for free. Download the Himalaya app in your app store, look up Personal Revolution, and enter the promo code REVOLUTION at checkout to get your first month absolutely free. If you're ready to go after a better life, you are ready for Personal Revolution. Here, take a listen. Hi, my name is Allison Task, and I am the host of Personal Revolution. Are you ready to be happy and do that thing you always wanted to do? Well, I am thrilled to announce that I have now made available for free the Personal Revolution podcast course. This course is based on my best-selling book, and it is now yours for free wherever you like to listen to podcasts. It includes 10 original episodes with plenty of never-released-before content, and then it includes a premium version. For $4.99 a month, you will get a customized workbook. You'll get access to a prior community on Himalaya, and you'll have just-in-time audio drop-ins from me again in the community on Himalaya. Just go to Himalaya.com, look up Personal Revolution, and type in Revolution to get your first month for free. I'll look forward to seeing you in the community. Hey, what's up? This is Sean Dustin from the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. So yeah, this is a first uh, crack at an ad there. On my way to the, uh, on the road of legitimacy, got a couple things today. The show has a merchandise page now, about seven different designs on it. If you're interested in supporting the show, why don't you shoot on over to uh, my link tree, hit the merchandise tab, and it'll take you right to uh, that page. 
And uh, yeah, if you want to support the show, go ahead over there. And there's some pretty cool designs there from the show art to a couple of different positive sayings, different formulas that I use uh, in my life when I find myself uh, in a hard situation. Also, there will be a Patreon page. I'm almost done with it. It It's on there as well. But I haven't loaded it up with uh, the different uh, perks that are going to be available uh, to the patrons. Uh, I'm going to have different stuff. There's going to be different levels. You know, some of those levels will be access to episodes before anybody else, and without any uh, it, this pre or, or post stuff in it. It's just the epi- it'll just be episodes themselves. Uh, also, uh, there'll be plenty of other things, opportunities to engage with me uh personally if you want also i haven't figured it all out quite yet it's in the process and then that'll be another way that you can help support the show if uh you know you like what i'm doing and you want to unencumbered access uh to the show episodes and uh, other other aspects of some of the stuff that i've done there'll be episodes that nobody's ever heard before i've got quite a few of them uh that didn't make it to the uh to the actual podcast itself. So I just put them over in the uh, Patreon page. So today I am talking to Eric Maddox again, and he's checks in with me about where he's at in his life at this point and in his uh, journey. When I talked to him, he was currently in Greece and he had gone there, there from uh, Spain, uh, somewhere in Spain. And he's now in Greece and he's making his way somewhere else. It's in the podcast. So, uh, we talked to him and he kind of, uh, lets us know a little bit about the, uh, refugee situation in Moria on the, uh, island of Lesvos in, uh, Greece. So it's, it's one of my favorite per- people to talk to, uh, by far. You know, I really enjoy everything that he has to, has to say and, and, you know, his knowledge and, uh, his passion for what he does. That was a good interview, good talk, a little bit long, but, uh, that's, you know, hey. It takes what it takes. And I think that's about it for me here. Yeah. So enjoy the show and uh, I'll talk to you in a few. So, hey, man, long time no talk or see or, yeah, or uh, I mean, we've, we've chatted a little yeah. bit uh, since the last episode, uh, but a lot has changed uh, since the last episode and where you are at, uh, with your podcast and with your physical location as well. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, where I'm at has changed too. <laughs> I think last time I talked to you, I was in Spain and now I'm in Germany and there've been a few places in between. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I just want to, I want to say, uh, well, my guest is Eric Maddox and he was a prior guest, uh, episode, I would say 13 or 12, one, one of those. And uh, I just want to say thank you for what you're doing uh, by taking on, which when I think about what you're doing and put it into a context that I can kind of understand and, and for myself, I, I'm not sure that I would be up to the task of doing what you're doing because it just seems like such a, a huge like when you when you telescope out from what you're doing and and look mm-hmm. at all of the steps that it takes to kind of expose what you're exposing and bringing light to some of these areas that don't get covered by the media it seems like a huge task mm-hmm. and you just kind of spearhead it and and like hey 
just one foot in front of the other and keep and keep trucking. Thank you. I mean, that, that's an inspirational to me as well as your, uh, you know, your interviewing style and, and, you know, the help that you've given me in kind of understanding how to interview myself and where mm-hmm. I was. So I just, I just want to thank you, uh, for all that you've done for me and what you were doing for humanity as well. First of all, man, I just say, I mean, I'm flattered that you think I'm, I'm doing something that's making a contribution, you know, like I'm, I'm just, as I said, I think in our last conversation, I'm just figuring this out as I go along too, you know, um, and uh, I'm making missteps and I mean, I'm contributing something small, but, you know, kind of in my own way to, to a larger story that is being told by other people too, you know. I mean, I'm trying to find maybe where my voice fits in all of this and where I can add something to a larger conversation, but I'm certainly far from alone um, in in trying to uh, expose some of the things that are happening on the ground, you know, whether it's Greece or just with refugees, more generally speaking, in the Middle East or around the world. So, I mean, I'm doing what I can with limited resources, um, and uh, I'm certainly not solving any of these problems, <laughs> and uh, I've, I've, I've got a voice that's heard by a few people, that's it. But, uh, but I'm trying to do the best I can to honor the, uh, the voices and the situation that my guests find themselves in and to um, be fair in how I present the, the facts and the things that I come across. That, that's all. And uh, anything beyond that is kind of out of my hands as far as who actually ends up hearing it, all that stuff. Um, yeah, I hope, I hope to be able to get the word out. I think that's kind of where we all are at as uh, podcasters and, and people that are just entering this space. We don't really know, aside from the numbers that Libsyn gives us, you know, who's really listening to what we're saying. But if you're in this for the right reason, none of that matters. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't really care about the numbers. I don't none of that really takes into consideration anything that I do. I just have something that I want to present. And I'm sure that, you know, you were the same way you want to present something that you feel is, is not being presented and get it out to the mainstream of people or a population that may not be hearing that from the mainstream media, which we are not. Um, I think that, a lot of things are coming to light, as I had said in previous uh, episodes of mine, that I think we're in a second age of enlightenment where a lot of things that have not been seen are starting to come into, come to light now from how our uh, political system is driven, shaped, um, programmed, uh, selected, not elected uh, individuals and how the media kind of controls that narrative and, and drives the masses. If you know what I mean? Like here's what I'm going to say. It's driving the masses in the direction that it wants to go. And just that alone puts a lot of other important things in the dark, kind of the things that you're doing and, and what you're trying to expose. Tell me how you went from Spain to where you currently are now. I had been wanting to get out into the field to do podcasting for a while. I mean, I've been doing kind of what we're doing now since I started it, what, maybe a year and a half ago, where I was just uh, 
making calls, you know, and, and, and to, I was speaking to people in places that in some instances had actually been before, you know, I was speaking to people in places across the Middle East, um, in the U S and, and really all over the place, some places where I had actually personally traveled and, uh, and places that I hadn't, but it had long been my intention from the inception when I first started the podcast to want to take it on the road. And the opportunity uh, finally presented itself. Uh, let's see. Well, I guess it's been uh, around the beginning of the year, you know, where I have uh, online work that, you know, I'm not making money hand over fist, but it at least allows me to be mobile. And if I'm really careful <laughs> with how I budget my funds um, and uh, can crash with friends here and there, then, uh, then yeah, I'm able to take this, this work with me. And so then the question became, okay, well, if I'm going to uproot myself and travel, what's a story that's worth doing that for? Because traveling, doing this, not being independently wealthy does present its own challenges. And so it needed to be a story that was like, you know, uh, first of all, that, that needed to be told uh, for a variety of reasons. And I've been working kind of on the periphery of like refugee communities and with those who are trying to assist them in in a variety of different contexts over the years. So I thought, all right, uh, I don't really have the ability to travel a huge distance. I'm already in Europe. Where can I go to where I can cover these kinds of stories? And I also already had history in Lesbos, and which is the Greek island uh, where I had spent time in 2015. And so I, and the refugee crisis there is still ongoing. So I just decided to head back to Greece. So that's, I mean, the, the, I guess the shorter answer to your question is where have I been since Spain? Well, I took off from Spain toward the end of uh, last year. I uh, stayed with a friend in Germany for a little while um, until I felt that I was in a position to move on toward Greece till like some connections started to develop. And then uh, went to Athens, then went to Lesbos, which is this island that's off the coast of Turkey. I mean, I think some Olympic caliber swimmers have actually swam there from Turkey. Um, but that would be pretty crazy for like you or me to do it. Unless you've got some talents I don't know about, man. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I'm not much of a swimmer. So, so yeah, but the, to give you an idea, it's close. Like you can see the Turkish coastline from this island. Like it's very visible. Um, so, so I decided to go back there for the first time since 2015. And after that, I spent a month on Lesbos, went back to Athens and visited a few refugee camps in the Athens area as well. And then my intention was to continue on conducting interviews with refugees, with volunteers, with uh, local people, also on another border of the European Union. And that was in the Balkans. So in this case, it would have been Croatia, Bosnia and Serbia. But as I was there, this is as of about, what, a week and a half ago or something, uh, the, the border started to close because of the coronavirus and the refugee camp started to close. And literally the day before I was supposed to go to Bosnia with uh, the organization that I'm working with on this podcast series, um, they're called Are You Serious? Uh, right before we were supposed to go, the day before we got word that like, they, yeah, we might have difficulty getting back into Croatia, um, or at least that I might as a non-citizen, and that the camps were closed anyway, so I wouldn't have access to them. So I ended up having to just halt my plans for the second part of this project. But what I did come away with was uh, one part of it completed. I spent about a total of about a month and a half in Greece and about a month of that on the island of Lesbos uh, documenting what was taking place 
in the largest refugee camp in Europe. And it's a camp called Moria uh, on the, again, on the island of Lesbos. It's about a 20-minute bus ride from a city, actually. Um, and to paint kind of a, I don't know, a verbal picture for people, like it's set in like these olive groves. It's kind of this really beautiful area. I mean, think of like, I don't know, parts of Italy or um, the Levant in the Middle East, like Palestine, et cetera. Um, it's this kind of idyllic setting of like, it looks like rolling hills and, and olive groves. But in the middle of it is this camp that was formed from a converted former military base uh, that was outfitted to maybe temporarily accommodate maximum 3,000 people. And right now, the capacity there, the occupancy there is about 23,000. So you can just imagine, like a space that's maybe there to accommodate 3,000 people has exploded into 20,000 people more than it's designed for temporarily. (laughs) And it's just, it's outrageous. (laughs) I mean, how to describe it. I've been around the Middle East, as I think we've already discussed a bit. I mean, I've been in and out of Syria, Gaza, the West Bank, um, Lebanon, these are all places where I've seen refugee camps and then I've been elsewhere, uh, other places in the Middle East too, Egypt, Tunisia, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I mean, what I saw in those camps was just about as bad as I've seen anywhere. And, and I want to be careful to draw comparisons too, because I think there's probably some situations in like Africa and in Syria right now that are, that are more desperate and that are certainly more dangerous because there's armed conflicts taking place around them. But what I saw, this was weeks before I was even aware of or anybody was really talking about coronavirus. My first impression walking through this camp was this is a public health emergency waiting to happen. And I wasn't thinking about coronavirus. I was thinking about like typhoid, cholera, something else, you know, the kinds of things that happen when you get people living in suffocatingly close proximity with like open latrines next to where they're getting their food and where they're sleeping and no real ability to maintain even basic standards of hygiene, like just washing your hands with soap and water, like would be an ordeal in these places. And they're dangerous. People are getting stabbed at night while people try to steal their cell phones. There's sexual assaults going on stories of like sex trafficking, human trafficking inside the camps and just kind of the state of general lawlessness that is terrifying for the occupants who came to Europe hoping to find refuge, you know, a better life, but also just refuge from, uh, from the lack of security they had in their home countries and in the countries they'd been living in in between in many cases. You know, there's people that I encountered that like they'd already been outside of their home countries for years before they ever came to Greece. They didn't just jump on a flight and come to to Turkey. Some of them did, but some of them had been in Turkey for a good deal of time before they even made it to, to Greece. Um, so yeah, it's like, it's, I don't know exactly even where to start, but hopefully that's a helpful entry point for us, man. Feel free to ask me anything you would like to about that. Yeah. I actually, you, you covered one, one of those cause I had that question, um, uh, you know, about Moria and the fact that, you know, it went from 3000 to 20 at one point, you said, you said 21,000. Uh, my, my questions were, you know, and you just answered that. What does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it sound like? Um, and mm-hmm. just through what you've just, uh, explained, you know, with the, 
the situation there and the lawlessness, like sort of a Mad Max uh, Beyond Thunderdome uh, kind of atmosphere for people like us in the West. I mean, that's that's not that's infathomable. I mean, how do you know what I mean? You, you it, when you think about it, you like that's just movie stuff because we're so sheltered. You know, and, and, and what things are like in, in other places, third world countries, uh, uh, conflict areas, stuff like that. It's like things that we couldn't even, we, we don't even, we don't, can't even imagine that because it's, we've never been, uh, put in situations like that. So. Yeah. I think a thing that's important to understand also is this is the West. This is Europe. This is happening in, this is the European Union. This is like one of the, like most powerful, like, economic communities on the planet you know and greece is in many ways like i've heard it described as a victim of geography you know it's the it's the the, it's holding the borders so to speak of of europe in its hands and there's a lot that's being mismanaged and there's a lot of what i would call like manufactured or engineered cruelty that doesn't need to be taking place um for political reasons and to send a message to people not to come. Um, so a lot of the conditions that I'm seeing, and I'd also, I mean, the Mad Max is, is, is an extreme comparison. I mean, it's not people running around with like AK-47s, just like shooting each other for Twinkies. You know, it's not completely nuts, but, but there are people getting killed over nothing um, on occasion. And there's fires that break out in the camp that happened. And one broke out like a couple of weeks ago. Nobody really knows why. And in these kinds of crowded conditions, they can become deadly very quickly. And I think a six or seven-year-old girl was burned alive. Um, that just, it just happens so fast. Um, and so there's, there's long lines for literally everything from, from receiving food to trying to go to the bathroom to waiting for basic medical care, which is like basic at best. Um, and there are people living under plastic sheeting, like these very basic tents in the wintertime. And uh, when it rains, like there's just mud rolling down the hills into these people's places where they're sleeping. There's piles of garbage that are like higher than I could jump with the outstretched arms. Um, and in trash bags that then get waterlogged and are, and are clogging up uh, riverbeds. And people shitting in open fields because standing in line for a latrine when it's cold and dark and even dangerous at night is just like a non-option. And if you've seen the latrines, you'd probably want to use a field yourself. I mean, they're just horrific looking. Um, so yeah, the, the Island of Lesbos is, is, is overwhelmed in a lot of ways. And Greece is in itself kind of an Island. And that if you, if I don't know how, familiar your listeners are with like European geography or European Union geography, but Greece, while on the continent of Europe, does not actually border the European Union. Like there are several countries between it and the rest of the European Union countries, um, Balkans countries, um, Albania, Macedonia, etc. And so if people are going to continue on from Greece, they have to cross out of the European Union to get back into it. And so Greece is a destination for many people because it's the closest country they can get to, at least by sea, from, from Turkey. And Turkey is connected to a lot of these ascending countries. You know, it's, it's, it's border Syria, et cetera. So 
there's the fact that Greece itself is kind of an, an island and as far as like what countries it doesn't border. And then the islands, the Greek islands, and this is the nation of islands, has it's also used its islands as open air prisons. Like once they cross and they get to these islands, um, and when I was there in 2015, you talked to people who were like, like their clothes weren't even dry before they were getting on a boat, a ferry boat, and then heading to Athens, which to give you an idea is like some distance on a boat. Like it's, I don't know, at least 12 hours, right? Um, yeah. Um, this is like these islands are spread out and it's about an hour flight from Athens to get to Lesbos. Um, so, so yeah, the people would have it, they would be, just to give you kind of like a, I don't know, an example, like somebody figures out a way to pay a smuggler to get them uh, out of Syria and they wind up in Turkey and then they pay a smuggler to get them onto a, a flimsy rubber raft uh, to cross the narrow body of water between the coast of Turkey and this island, Lesbos, which is Greece, European soil. And they discover at the last minute that their life jacket is fake and doesn't actually work. It's just stuffed with like newspaper or something, which is very common. And they get into a boat and they're sharing it with like dozens of other people. And they're these very, I mean, picture like kind of these, like the Zodiac, like rubber rafts, but it's like homemade and like kind of not put together terribly well and like leaking and they, and, and like way oversized, like three times as big as you're probably visualizing, like something that you use for like, fun on the river like they're just massive and uh they're leaky pieces of crap that that um are stuffed like like crazy like i think i've heard like up 60 people or more man um in these boats little little kids and then they just push them off the land and if anybody complains like people will get a gun pointed at them you know or get hit um and have their lives threatened and then there's somebody's told the last minute okay you're driving aim for those lights something like this. Oh, wow. And then they're just stuck in the water. And depending on how the tides are moving, the currents are moving, they can be on the water for, I've heard one person tell me they got across in an hour, which is like miraculous. Other people get stuck for like nine, 10 or more hours. Like in the, and this is like sometimes crossing in the wintertime at night, you know, on like uh, choppy seas with screaming kids and water coming into your boat because it's starting to sink and they do sink and people do drown and die. So that's, that's one crossing point. That's a narrow crossing point between Turkey and Greece. Okay. Most of the crossings are taking place elsewhere in the Mediterranean and as are most of the deaths. And until around 2016, um, well, I should back up. Crossings that were taking place in Italy uh, started to shift further westward after the Italian government elected kind of a right wing um, uh, I think it was an interior minister and he took like a, a very brutal approach to managing migration flows and basically disclosed Italian ports. The Italian government, um, along with the European union started supplying and funding the Libyan coast guard. And I'd put that in quotes because at least in one instance, like the Libyan coast guard are is actually a human trafficker and warlord. Hmm. Like, so they're basically running both sides of this thing and taking money to like manage the, uh, manage the flows of migration outward. And, uh, yeah, so people were getting pushed back from Italy back to Libya, which is also illegal under international law. It's, it's a violation of something called, 
uh, non-refoulement, which means you can't repatriate people back to a country where they are likely to be persecuted. And in the case of Libya, like there's open air slave markets, people are routinely tortured um, and uh, thrown into uh, well, brutal prisons. I mean, it would be probably even a delicate way of putting it. The conditions inside, I mean, there's just like people are making torture videos and sending it to people's families to extort more money from them. Uh, it's just awful. So that's just Libya. And in 2016, what happened was this, a few months after I left Lesbos, um, uh, in early, mid-2016, the European Union agreed to pay Turkey $6 billion in order to keep any more refugees from coming to Europe. So basically, they just gave them bribe money and said, look, we don't want to deal with this problem. We'll just give you a bunch of money if you'll house them all. And so since that time, Turkey has become the largest host country in the world to refugees, 3.7 million Syrians alone, and at least a million, or I'm sorry, at least 4 million total from different countries, Africa, Afghanistan, Iran, all over the place. And uh, so there's also about another million and arguably another 2 million, depending on how things wind up with the Syrian war, um, right on their borders who could try and cross over um, or who may need to. Um, so right now it's also happening in Syria, a war that many people have forgotten about um, as of years ago is that it's experiencing the largest displacement of people since that war started. Now, the war started back in 2011, but that's happening now in this province called Idlib, which is in the northwestern part of the country, as the Syrian government starts to um, kind of mop up, to put it indelicately, like, as, it, as it kind of winds down its war and uh, um, retakes the last rebel stronghold in that country. So there's a million people who have been displaced by that final um, that final move. And, and then I think another million in the urban centers who could also quickly follow them and being displaced. So you've got to kind of get people to understand what's going on here. You've got like people who are already flowing from Turkey into Greece at a certain pace that's slowed down by this bribery deal back in 2016. And then you have refugees who are still coming into Turkey and Turkey being uh, told they just kind of need to put a lid on it. And then while that's happening, you have massing of more people, uh, possibly millions more people on the border with Turkey. And so what happened was, I think it was in late February. Um, yeah, late February, there was a strike by Syrian forces on Turkish forces because Turkey has invaded Syria at this point, the northern part of the country, um, since many months ago. And, uh, 33 of their soldiers were killed in a Syrian strike. And immediately Erdogan, the president of Turkey, his response was to say, I am telling all my border guards with the European Union, like all my Turkish border guards, to stand down and basically let the refugees go. And there's a number of different thoughts on why he did this at that particular moment. But it's not a coincidence that it's following like an attack on his soldiers in, in a conflict in Syria. Uh, one thought is that he did this because he wants to pressure the European Union, NATO, Western countries to provide him with more military support for his offensive, or at least not to stop him from doing some of the things that he'd like to do that might be, I don't know, human rights violations, whatever, or just restrictions on his movements because they're not uh, politically in the interest of the West. So there's that dynamic. And then there's also the fact that his own citizens are, are growing more and more displeased with the 
number of refugees that are in their country, which is happening in a lot of places that are hosting large numbers of refugees, including, including Greece. So it was also a way to kind of appease his own citizens and say, see, look, I'm going to like, uh, I'm going to make Europe pay for some of this for a change. Like they're going to have to handle some of these problems. Um, so those two things kind of took place at the same time. And the result was that you, for a few days, you did have major headlines coming out of Turkey and Greece, where there were these reports of like, uh, pushbacks on the border where like Turkey was literally busing people to the, to the land border with Greece. Um, and boats started to cross as well, um, which they had been for some time anyway, but, uh, but without resistance from the Turkish and crossings and, uh, yeah, reports of people getting beaten and then just kind of getting stuck in the middle. Like they couldn't really go back to Turkey and they couldn't get into Greece. And then Greece suspended asylum. They said, it doesn't matter if you come to our country at this point anyway, we are hereby like for one month revoking uh, asylum. Like you cannot apply to be a refugee in our country anymore, which is a total violation of EU law, of international law, like um, just binding international treaties you, that they are signatory to. You can't deny people the right to request asylum. Um, yeah, yeah, that was, signed these instruments. Yeah, that was one of my questions that I had that uh... – you know, World War Two. You had said that uh, the reason why that uh, Greece is, uh, you know, an asylum place is because it used to be in World War Two that the Europeans came there uh, to seek asylum and were refugees from what was happening uh, in their in their country. Correct. I think. Well, it's not that people were coming to Greece. It's that. Greeks were themselves refugees like other Europeans were. I mean, this was a Nazi-occupied country, right, um, like much of Europe. So part of what happened at the end of that war, and I might get the dates wrong, I think it's 1954 or 52, um, where the first like major international treaties dealing with refugees were created, largely by European and Western countries, saying, look, like, we need to have some sort of plan like for what to do and what our obligations are to one another and to citizens um, if something as crazy as this ever happens again. Because there were mostly, most of the refugees were Jews for obvious reasons. This is when the Holocaust was taking place and people um, were being, the ones who survived were being liberated from concentration camps and maybe didn't have anything to go back to or didn't want to go back for obvious reasons. Um, and then other people, you know, different persecuted groups and also German citizens and people from like all sides who just been uprooted because of the, the war for one reason or another. And there needed to be some sort of plan and some sort of clearly identified set of rights for for what citizens could expect if they were ever displaced by war again. The thing is that that the that dealt with specifically with the rights of Europeans in the case of refugee status. And that's it. Um, and then a few years later, I think it was 1967, the second, uh, I think it's the um, 1967 UN Protocols on Refugees. And this dealt with everybody else. And the, time, the timing on this is not coincidental either. Like the 60s were a time of decolonization. Um, you might put that in quotes, but it was a time of decolonization in uh, a lot of the global South where former like imperial powers like France, Great Britain, uh, 
et cetera, were pulling their, at least their formal occupation out of countries that they'd been colonizing for some time. And so these other countries that were becoming independent were, of course, saying, look, we should have the same rights as any other, you know, Western countries do when it comes to our refugees. And so that was the second phase of like refugee rights. You have these two instruments, like the 1952 or 54, I think, protocol or conventions, and then the 1967 protocols. And these are binding international treaties that have to do with what rights people can expect to receive if they are displaced from their home countries um, for any of a variety of reasons, you know, because they're persecuted for because of their identity and their identity can be a, along a number of different lines, you know, the political identity because of their religion, because of their race, et cetera, um, because of armed conflict, uh, all those factors come into play. So when we say that they're breaking the law and not letting people come in, it's not that you can't just turn these things on and turn them off at your convenience. The U.S. can't turn these laws on and turn them off at their convenience. Part of what happened when these international treaties came into effect, and I'll be very quick and point out here, I'm not a lawyer, right? Like this is just my reading on the subject and what I've learned from talking to some lawyers and other people who are more knowledgeable than I am. But what one of the ways that these laws, these international laws come into force is that they're not just some like magical thing hanging out there called international law, which everybody seems to violate all the time. You're required to make your own national laws, like mirror them. So it's not just that it's like some law that exists in like the UN. It's, it's, it's the law of your country now too. That's part of your agreement in sign, signing these treaties. And every country might have a slightly different variation on like how they enforce it. That's, you know, more specific to like their constitutions, things like that. But, but the general force of these laws, of these treaties are universal. And so when the U.S. is just saying, you know, like we're just not going to give people asylum anymore. Uh, when Greece says, you know, what, we're just going to suspend this. It's violating its own laws. They're not just they're not just breaking a promise that they made, you know, back in the 60s um, and disappointing a few people. Like they're directly violating their own laws and also as a European Union member because the European Union has its own like treaties and obligations. So when they do that, um, in some ways they're saying, look, like this treaty that, that came out of this, the, 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 this notion that came out of the Second World War, which was really established first and foremost, you know, like its first iteration was inspired by the desperation of Europeans and to protect Europeans should they ever have to endure being refugees again, that's what you're suspending. Like it was your idea because you were refugees once. And now here within living memory, you're saying like, well, yeah, but not for these people. Like it's not really convenient right now. You know, what it, how convenient was it for people to house European refugees at varying points, you know? Um, and these people, trust me, they don't want to be making these journeys if you see what they go through, if you hear the stories of what they go through in order to just get to the boats before they even try and make this crossing, like it's horrific. Like they're enslaved, they're sexually abused, they're kidnapped, their families are extorted for, for more money through ransom. Um, they're beaten by police. They're stuck for years at a time in detention centers that they later escape or are released from. Like it's, it's hell in a lot of cases, even getting to the borders of the European Union. And some people get there relatively quickly and some people are fairly well off and it's like uh, they barely break a sweat on the journey. You know, there's a spectrum here. But there are people who endure like tremendous hardship 
And when they finally do get to Lesbos, what awaits them is this open air prison that looks like nothing I've ever seen in the quote unquote developed world. Yeah. You'd mentioned that, you know, the, the reaction of some of the people, uh, coming in there was like of disappointment and like they were led into a lie. And in some ways they kind of were, man, like they're the rackets that the smugglers run and the smugglers, from what I understand, there's like quote unquote good smugglers and bad smugglers. Like there's some, they're just like, it's a business, you know, like you pay them and they get you across. There's, you can argue about the legality of what they're doing and the, how ethical it is to be involved in that enterprise and getting people illegally to cross borders. But that's it. Their role in it is not to try and make people's lives any more miserable. They're just providing a service. And then there's others that are awful, you know, that are just, that are predators and that um, may or may not even get you to where they say they're going to take you. Um, they're just see you as, as a victim that they can prey upon easily. Um, and then there's some in between, you know, they'll get you there, but like they'll fleece you for everything you've got along the way and uh, rape all your female family members, you know? Um, so, so what some of the smugglers were telling people before they came across was, look, what you're getting when you pay us for this service to get you across to Greece. Um, and I'm pretty sure this holds true crossing to places other than Greece too. This is probably a racket. This has taken place like at different um, stages um, entering Europe is you're paying for, and they'll say, look at these Facebook pages. You see all these NGOs that, that are in the camps that are providing people with hot food and like showers and a place to sleep. We work with them. So you're not just paying us to put you on a boat. Like this service is like your accommodations when you get there <laughs> and they're lying. Like they're acting as though like somehow they're working with all of these NGOs that are on European soil and that like they're all somehow like part of this like coalition to help them have a have a, an easy entrance into European life. And NGOs like obviously have no benefit from this trafficking scenario whatsoever and are dealing with in some cases like refugees who are showing up saying like what the hell's going on here? Like why are you not providing and and on the receiving end of anger while they're trying to provide services that they're underfunded to provide in the first place and understaffed and under-resourced for. And when I start, first started realizing that this is kind of taking place was in 2015. Um, so years ago, this has been going on for quite some time. It's just you'd see people that were like kind of expecting to like maybe even have a hotel room waiting for them. Yeah, like this isn't included in no, my... You're going to be sleeping on a floor with a bunch of other people under a dirty scabies blanket. Yeah, it, that? it yeah, it sounded it sounded more like, hey man, this wasn't included in the itinerary that I paid for. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I mean, I think it's deal? it's kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's crazy, man. Especially I, what's even crazier is that people. I mean, this this goes to show how bad badly people are in situations that they're willing to put themselves and their families through through hell yeah. because you know the hell that they're li they're leaving in their mind was worth enduring the hell that they're going to probably halfway not understanding you know what i mean sometimes when you get put into a situation yeah. where you're desperate just getting away from what's making you desperate in the first place kind of blinds you to what may happen 
beyond that in your journey to get to wherever it is you want to go. Of course. I mean, wouldn't that apply to any of us? You know, like what if I told you, you know, tomorrow, like, uh, um, you just need to figure out how to get out of the U S you got 24 hours, man, get out. What about my, you've got got no passport, you've got no transportation. Um, and you just need to get yourself to the closest international border. And by the way, that border isn't like Canada or someplace that wants you in. Yeah. They're armed and they may, they may shoot you. They may kill you. They may beat you. They may rape you, but you know, Hey, and then figure it out. And, uh, here's a, here's a phone number, somebody who can help you. And you've got no other options but to just kind of trust that the person on the other end of that phone is someone who's going to get you to where you need to go. But that's it. You don't know anything about them. You know, they're not running an NGO. <laughs> they're doing, you know, that what they're doing for you is illegal. So, like, your opportunities to complain or to seek protection from law enforcement are zero. Um, yeah. I mean, how, how do you, do any of us know how to be a refugee? You know? Like you just, you, you, you learn it by doing it, man. And uh, it's, it's not something that like people, I think that there's this kind of notion that a lot of us have, which is just that, ah, well, those people over there, like they're always just kind of seem to be refugees, you know, just like they always kind of seem to be poor. That's just a part of the world where there's always problems and they're probably just used to having problems all the time. It's like nobody wakes up knowing how to run for their life from an armed conflict where they used to have a neighborhood and a family. You know, nobody wakes up being an expert and how to like um, extricate themselves from that situation and then navigate multiple international borders without getting caught by the police and not getting preyed upon by human smugglers and doing this all with like a screaming baby and maybe some other children with them um, so that they can't even really move that quickly. You know, any of which can be used as leverage against them at any point. Yeah. That's the part that I, that I, I think about because I am a father, I do have a, a, uh, almost three year old toddler and like, I know how protective I am of her and there is no conflict. You know what I mean? We, the, the hardest decision I had to make yesterday was, you know, probably something really silly and dumb, you know, and compared to, okay, well, how am I going to keep my family members that are female from being raped? Uh, you know, or, having something bad happen to them forget about traumatic situation ptsd and all that other thing those other things that uh, are going to now ruin my child possibly uh you know because they're trying to process this you know what i mean in the most formidable years of their life um you know what i mean it's like jesus yeah how how do you how do you navigate that I, i mean and and of course you will you will find a way we, we are resilient in, in ways, but it still doesn't put it into perspective of what it could possibly be like. You know what I mean? From somebody that's over here in, in, I don't know, what, what do you call it? Like a first world country where like we're so far removed in, in the United States and on this continent from the things that are still happening in, I mean, I know yeah. below the border, I mean, could be, uh, you know. Oh yeah, man, this is happening. This is happening with the U S too. You know, it's just the scenario is slightly different, but if you, I mean, I can paint a quick picture of that too. It's like, it's almost like, and maybe they are, maybe Western countries really are in dialogue with one another because I've been covering through my podcast stories from refugees in a variety of different contexts. Um, and flows of migrants in different contexts from 
Mexico to the Middle East to um, uh, South Asia and or Southeast Asia. And the, there's a lot of features of those stories that are surprisingly similar. And one of them is this um, strategy of warehousing people in other countries instead of allowing them to come into your own. So they don't stay necessarily in their own country. It's just that you like figure out a way to coerce or pay off a third country to just kind of handle your problem for you. You know, in some ways that might be what's happening with the U.S. and Mexico right now. You know, you've got a lot of people from like Central America who are stuck on the other side of the border waiting for their asylum applications in situations where they might have like like drug cartels like threatening their lives on a daily basis, right? Like totally not safe for them. Um, And uh, not being given an opportunity to like cross and at least be safe someplace inside the U.S., um, so you have that and you also have like, so you have the U S applying different means, uh, to Mexico to incentivize them not to allow people to leave Mexico and also to strengthen Mexican border enforcement on its Southern border, like with Guatemala. And, um, and I've heard some pretty oh, brutal stories about some of the, the tactics that have been used there as well. Um, and then you've got what I've already described with Europe. And I mean, I haven't even really gone into like the tactics that are being used by um, other than Libya, uh, the the different uh, border enforcement mechanisms, whether they're European or whether they're the countries on the border of Europe to keep people from crossing. Europe's putting a lot of energy into militarizing its borders rather than addressing the root causes of these problems. It's throwing money at the problem and then it's throwing up like everything that it can instead of a actual solution to the root causes. Um, and that makes who rich, right? It's the same old story, like defense contractors, all of that stuff, like they're going to get the money. And then you have in the case of like uh, Southeast Asia, you have people from like Myanmar um, and and other places, even Iran, going the other direction and trying to get to Australia. And then the Australian government is applying these same kinds of pressures to like Indonesia, saying, we don't want them coming here. Here, you take care of the problem. And then providing them with whatever they need to warehouse those people um, in Indonesia. So you have like, there's just three quick examples, you know, of these like, um, I don't like to use the word developed and undeveloped because maybe developed is like an overly lauded concept when we see what development's actually gotten us and where it's led us (laughs) environmentally and otherwise. But you have like the, the developed world, so to speak, like paying countries in the global South to, this warehouse the problems that it's creating. If we really start looking at why these people are fleeing the countries in the first place, you know, who's responsible for it? Is um, in the case of Afghanistan, I mean, is it? It's not confusing, like what people are running from there, and uh, that the U.S. has some role to play in that. Uh, Syria as well, you know. Um, uh, and if people are confused, like what role the U.S. has in Syria, this is a knock-on effect from the U.S. invasion of Iraq back in 2003 and destabilizing the entire Middle East. Um, this is that still we're still feeling it. Doesn't matter if like you're not hearing about it every day in the news. Like other people are living it every single day, you know, on their streets, and they're having to run for their lives. Ah, yeah, it's a uh, it's definitely a lot to think about. Uh, one of my other questions. I, it is, man. I'm kind of raining a lot down on you. Sorry. No, no. I mean, it's stuff that needs to be to thought about. You know, I mean, that's how you that's how you change things is is bringing them to light, and then once they get to light, getting enough people to hear 
what's happening. And then it starts a movement at some point. Um, it's, you know, uh, we are very, I want to say selectively ignorant to things over here, you know, cause when you, the, the toughest thing, you know, and, and I've kind of been dealing with this with myself as, you know, I'm doing my podcast and, and, and bringing up subjects that are, uh, you know, may not, people may not want to hear or think about, but it does, it forces you to think about something other than yourself and your own, you call it mindless consumption of whatever it is, media, goods, mm. uh, uh, consumer products, uh, <laughs> the next big TV I want to purchase. Um, mm. I mean, we get wrapped up in all of that and it kind of like, all right, well, if I, if I acknowledge that this atrocity is happening, then I'm forced to look at it. But if I, if I just ignore it and, and act like I don't see it, then I don't have to be in action about anything about it. Does that make sense? Or if you rationalize it, you know, I mean, there's certain things that we can't necessarily ignore. Like, you know, that they're happening. You can't deny that there's a war in Syria, but you can blame Muslims for it. You know, you can, you can just say that, well, this is just the way that those backward people over there always are. And it's not my problem. You can rationalize your passivity or lack of engagement or your apathy, even if you recognize that awful things are happening. So, ew, my phone's, phone's One, ringing. One of, no, it's not on my end. One of the unintended consequences that you mentioned in uh, the interview that I listened to was the radicalization of some of these uh, refugees mm-hmm. by, by uh, extremists extremist groups yes um i mean that's kind of a minor point that i I mean i could i can go into that a little bit it's not something that i have any special expertise in but what i would say is that first of all there's a lot of undue attention that that subject is receiving you know this there's a lot of fear-mongering going on especially by right-wing political interests and extremist groups on the right in Europe and the West that are suggesting that look like all these young men that are coming, like they're all just jihadists bringing like their poisonous religion to us. And they want to enslave our women and create a caliphate. And like, why aren't they just staying in their countries and fighting their own battles and blah, blah, blah. We've heard it all before. Like Islamic state's going to be coming with the refugees. Um, That's pretty much bullshit. (laughs) And I can break that down in in a number of different ways. Um, But I also do want to talk about the fact that there are people who have been in refugee camps who have grown frustrated. And this is like people who are in refugee camps in the Middle East, like in Lebanon, um, for example, where they are stuck, you know, in kind of the middle of nowhere, forgotten by the world, because as long as they're not coming to Europe, nobody cares about them, you know. Um, they're just being warehoused elsewhere in the Middle East, not directly in the war zone, but in a place that's still like not meeting their basic needs. And I've visited those camps um, as well in the Bekaa Valley. And there are people that since the first months of the war, like made it to Lebanon, spent months or years there and just realized this is awful. Like we can't survive here. Like they're sleeping under plastic in the middle of winter when there's like snow, serious snow on the ground and having to pay rent for the privilege because they're staying on private farmland. They're not just like being housed as soon as they get across the border by the UN and all their problems are solved with hot meals every day. 
you're having to like work in the fields on these private farms and pay rent for the privilege of sleeping in these tar- under tarps in the middle of like snowy winter and their kids are having to work alongside them. So they're not getting an education either while this is going on because they need to be child laborers in order to help pay the rent, making whatever few dollars they make a month, you know? Um, and there are certainly instances where like if, if you're stuck in that situation for long enough and someone comes along and says, look, man, why don't you just come back and fight? You know, like uh, here's a gun and here's a paycheck. And if you are angry that your village was just destroyed by one side or the other, that maybe somebody close to you was killed um, and you've got no other options in life. So you don't really care about throwing yours away. Um, or you feel like the only thing that you can really contribute of any meaning to your family, you know, is someone who's supposed to be a breadwinner is that you put your life on the line and figure out some way to get the money. Um, then maybe you take, take someone up on their offer and that could be from one side or another, who knows, but there are plenty of people. And I think what you're referring to is a point in another interview where I was saying, look, you do have people that are going and joining these extremist groups. And it's not that they're necessarily extremists themselves. You know, it's maybe an opportunity for like a meal ticket and revenge of some kind. And that's it, you know? And then once they're there, like the harsh reality of what they've signed up for becomes very clear, or maybe they just don't care anymore. You know, like at a certain point, like people just get broken down. They feel like their the list of options is very short and um, they see their own lives possibly as cheap, which is tragic. And it's not a scenario that needs to exist. You know, the war didn't need to exist in the first place. They didn't need to be abandoned after they fled from it. Like the list of things that don't need to be happening to people before they're faced with those kinds of decisions is long. Yeah. So there's that. And then there's also this narrative that like, well, it's all like, look at all the young men who are coming to Europe. Like, why is it all young men? If these are desperate people, where are the women and children and the old people? All right. So if you have, if you're a simple family, not a wealthy family in Syria, um, or Mexico or Central America or wherever. Like pick a country, man, pick a community that the stories are pretty similar. And you can get together just enough money to send one person out. Who do you pick? Pick the one who you think is more likely to be able to endure the journey and, and be successful. And find a job on the other end. Yeah. And then start yeah. the process of, you know, trying to save money, send money home or, or get enough to get the next person across. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's just yeah. that simple, man. It's just that simple. And so you see young men because they're the ones who are likely to be able to survive all the things that I spent the first half of this interview describing, right? Like they, they might be able to swim it. If the, if the boat sinks, they might be able to endure the beatings you might be able to endure like the long walks and whatever other hell they need to go through, which could just be surviving like the, the disease conditions in these camps, you know, and the deprivation, um, not to mention the violence. So they're the ones with the best shot of making it out of there, the best shot of finding a job when they get there. And then the other critique you hear is, well, if they're so poor, then why do they have like uh, smartphones with them? What else do you equip somebody with man, when they're going on a journey like this? so that they can communicate with the smugglers, so that they can hear about what's happening in the next country before they reach it, so that they know what crossing points to avoid and how to not get killed or detained, and how to stay in touch with their families to let them know that they're not dead. 
you know, and also, by the way, it's a tool for wiring people money, <laughs> you know, um, that's how I'm managing my banking um, is on my smartphone. So there's a variety of reasons why like you would see young men with like some basic modern conveniences making these journeys. And the narrative that you're being given by, I don't know, call it propaganda or call it uh, right-wing xenophobes uh, in Western countries is simplistic and often racist nonsense. Yeah, I mean, those are actually the wrong questions you should be asking. The questions you should be asking is why why is this person willing to put themselves through all of this in order for this one simple goal? You know, what, what, what are those problems and why aren't we addressing that? Uh, and when you see their families with them, there's another thing to ask, which is like, it's not like, why are young men coming? It's when you see an entire family, you're like, holy shit. Like, how bad did it have to be that like everybody else came too? You know? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Like, they must have really been desperate if like a pregnant mother and like a grandmother and a guy, I mean, I talked to a guy who had lung cancer, man, in the camp, you know, and he didn't develop it on the way that I'm aware of. Like, these are people with like serious like reasons not to move, um, uprooting themselves and taking their lives in their hands um, when they're very fragile and vulnerable the entire journey. So that gives you some insight into like how bad things must be back home. That certain that that the most vulnerable people are are coming at all. Yeah, that's it, too bad. It, it really is, uh, it, and it's like many of the problems that we're facing in in the world right now. Is you know how do you how do you fix it? Uh, I have two more questions for you. Uh, one of them is. Uh, what got you so passionate about wanting to help refugees, but more so, uh, I mean, it's a two part question. Um, give giving voices to people in places, uh, that aren't really being covered by the mainstream media. What, what, how did you get to that point? Um, let's see. Well, the part of like why I care about it is just exposure. And I think anybody that would, that, that's exposed to human suffering um, has some sort of reaction to it, you know, um, unless you're a robot. Like you have some kind of reaction. It's either to deflect it and to try and rationalize it away as not being your responsibility um, or just feeling at a loss, like what can I possibly do? And just kind of throwing up your hands and giving up or thinking, okay, what can I do that will make some kind of difference? And, um, I find myself kind of somewhere in between those last two <laughs> pretty often. Like, I don't know that I'm making much of a difference. Um, and, uh, but I also can't unsee some things that I've seen in my life. And, uh, I have limited means as far as my ability to move around and financially and otherwise. But but if I'm going to do something with what limited talents I have in this life, um, I mean, I just can't see something else that's more worthy of my time. And what was your other question? It was like, why am I doing this? And oh, and also about like the the media not covering it. Um, what I would say is this: the BBC is there. Like CNN is probably there. 
um, the, the global media is covering these issues to a certain degree. Um, and I, the reason that I point that out to you is that some people will take issue with saying that the media is not covering it and to say, yes, they are. So what you're saying is not true. It's the job's being done. Like you're just raising like, like, uh, uh, false concerns. The media is covering it, but the question is, how is the story being told? Right. Is, is so often the case, I think with so many instances of human suffering, um, in the global South and, who are we hearing from? Like who's in charge of telling the story? Is it like Western journalists parachuting into these countries, like with five minutes worth of like historical context with the idea of the story already formed in their heads that they want to tell. And then just grabbing a couple of quotes from local people. Cause that seems to happen a lot. And I don't find that terribly helpful. And it's why a lot of these stories end up sounding the same, just kind of like they're being repeated over and over again, which just generates more apathy from people because they're like, oh, I've already heard the story a hundred times. You know, um, it's the safe way to tell it is the way that t- is telling it the way it's already been told. And so I don't see that I'm necessarily covering issues that people aren't covering. It's that I'm trying to find the stories inside those like conditions. And the perspectives that aren't being represented. Like my view is like try and go f- and find the immediate stakeholders. Like this, there's this idea that is, or there's this kind of trope or this expression that gets repeated a lot um, that kind of drives me nuts. And it's like that, that people like me or journalists or whomever are giving voice to the voiceless. No, we're not. Like these people have voices, man. <laughs> and the problem is that you don't hear them if you're the one that's hogging the microphone, <laughs> you know, like it's our job to pass the mic to people. And if you're not doing that, then I think we have to take a long, hard look at ourselves and ask ourselves, why is that? How can you find yourself in the middle of these kinds of circumstances and you're the only one talking about it? When you've got, a, when you're surrounded by thousands of experts and what's going on because they're living it. Like that's where I think um, my responsibility is. And maybe where, you know, I'm not the only person handing a, a microphone to, to local people or to refugees, but, but I think that that's how I should show up, you know? Um, so it's that I might be going to some of the same places as other people, but I've been inspired by, by the people that have made a point of, not putting themselves front and center and trying to put the narrative back in the hands of the people that are the most vulnerable. Um, and whenever possible, give them the tools they need to tell their own stories because it's going to be more compelling anyway, coming from them. It's going to be more authentic. Um, and, uh, it's going to be closer to the truth. You know, you're not having to guess at what it feels like. You can just ask someone else and they'll tell you. And every community I've come across, man, in my travels, and I've seen a lot of communities that don't have much, they've all got somebody who can speak about what's happening. And you just need to make some modest effort to find them. I mean, people want to share their frustrations and they want to share um, their grievances. So you just need to make an effort to, uh, to seek it out. That's it. And I think that there's reasons why that isn't happening. You know, there's reasons why we don't hear much discussed when it comes to root causes and history. You don't get much of that. It's all really just kind of a a snapshot description of like what's happening right now that's awful in this particular moment. 
and not how did we get here? You know, why is this war happening? Who's making money off of this? You know, why doesn't it seem to end? Um, what are the people on the other side angry about? Um, are they all just like monofaceted uh, um, robotic terrorists? Or do they, are there any grievances in what they're saying that are accurate or that are appealing to their communities so that they're able to recruit people? It's like so often it's just a question of good versus bad or impossible to address suffering that doesn't seem to have a source. You know, all of these, all of these people would rather stay in their homes. And for the most part, even in a lot of countries that are experiencing war and conflict, like people in a lot of those countries are still managing to move on with their daily lives in some way or another. You know, it has to get pretty desperate for people to finally give up even on that and to leave. So I think that we owe other people, as I've said, probably in our other interview. And as I say in my show quite a bit, like we owe people our curiosity you know, for the people who are in desperate circumstances and don't really have much time to devote to anything other than their, their personal survival and the survival of their families and their loved ones, we owe their circumstances and their well-being our curiosity. We need to start asking more questions about what other people are going through um, because it could be us someday for no other reason. And uh, it could be us that are suffering, you know, in, in, in silence or having other people tell our stories for us and getting it wrong. That's a good point, man. Uh, for sure. It's a good point. One other question that I have, and I've kind of waited till the end cause I didn't want this, uh, this issue to overshadow the, the, the point that you were trying to make with, you know what I mean? The refugee crisis in itself, but there's also another element to what we're actually experiencing right now with uh, COVID-19 is in these refugee camps. I mean, that's, that's got the perfect, uh, you know, perfect storm of elements to, to, uh, cause disease or, or actually, you know, the spread of it there, if it actually makes it there mm. could be, uh, devastational. Yeah. Um, you said it, man. I mean, it's, 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 I'm doing my best to stay up with the situation, but as you know, like the body count, the infection rate, um, the number of infected, like these things are changing, like not even a daily, like an hourly basis. Right. And so I don't know the current situation in every refugee camp everywhere, but I do know that it's not a question of if, but when it starts showing up in some of these places and the results are going to be catastrophic and very rapid because you've got people who are living on top of one another. So the idea of maintaining like of self-isolating it, forget it. It's just not, it's not even physically possible. Then on top of that, it's non-hygienic conditions. They can't even wash their hands. They may or may not have access to anything to, to, to like uh, um, to cover their faces. Not that, that most masks are even that effective anyway. Um, so you've got unhygienic conditions on top of that. And then on top of that, you've got a lack of access to uh, healthcare resources. So once they do become infected, like there's no like respirators in these places or certainly not enough. Um, and from what I understand, there's already some cases reported in Gaza, which is 2 million people in a strip of land that if I remember right, is about 40 kilometers long by 11 kilometers wide. 
in arguably the world's largest open air prison. Hmm. People have been stuck there for 13 years, can't go in or go out unless somebody allows them temporarily, like temporarily opens a border. Um, so if it takes off there, you've got, I think maybe 300 hospital, like emergency beds and a place for 2 million people. You do the math, man. Like it's just going to be catastrophic. So basically we are, are literally in the beginning stages of this thing, uh, of this virus and, and the outbreak of it. Um, you know, it just hasn't branched out yet into these outer lying areas. You know, to, it's been starting in bigger cities like, like San Francisco, uh, you know, the Bay Area, California. Uh, it's, uh, you know, you got Washington state right now and you also have, uh, New York has a pocket of it. But once it starts going, um, New York's exploded from what I understand. I think it might be more than the rest of the U.S. combined. I'm not sure. I haven't looked. Yeah, it, it, it spiked up and then, uh, Washington spiked up again. Uh, I mean, we're, we're doing okay here. I'm on mandatory, uh, shelter in place for three weeks. No work, no nothing. You're in the Bay Area, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, pretty much the whole state of California, the governor put us on, on, yeah. on yeah. lockdown. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's just a matter of time before it, it does spread across to some of these other areas, um, you know, and, and starts doing, doing its damage there. So I mean, we're, we're in strange times right now. Yeah, man. So, I mean, if it, if there's a point where I can offer some suggestions for solutions, let me know. Cause I want to leave people with action items. I don't want to just provide people with like a catalog of things to despair about like there's some things that people can actually do right now well yeah i mean if you want to if you want to uh go ahead and, and and talk about those that's fine i mean this was pretty much you know your your time man that, that's kind of how i run my run my my deal all right uh, okay cool so let's see um first of all in the case of greece um and other camps where people are just stuck on these islands. Um, yeah. In the case of Greece, you have about 42,000 people who are spread out across several of these islands in the Aegean um, with all the conditions that have already been described that I don't need to go into again. And on top of it, we, we just touched on this, the coronavirus, like can show up at any moment. Um, they need to be moved to the mainland to uh, relocation centers where their asylum applications can be expedited and where they can have access to better, better medical care. That's going to introduce a strain on the Greek government, which needs to be um, given assistance from the European Union. Again, one of the wealthiest communities on the planet, you know, plenty of resources. Um, so they need to get serious about addressing that issue before there's a cataclysmic like outbreak uh, across these islands. That's one thing. And that, again, that's going to play out all over the global South. There's also a move by the United Nations right now to try and get the G20 countries, like the 20 richest countries, to provide debt relief or forgive the debts to the poorest countries in the world so that they can stop focusing on repaying these debts, which are, I won't even go into like how they got into debt in the first place. Um, so that they can go into focusing their economic resources on saving their own people. And also we need to lift sanctions 
on countries so that they can purchase medical equipment and all the things that they need to in order to address their humanitarian needs. And specifically, I would say Iran is one of them, um, where it's also one of the hardest hit countries. But they're having trouble, from what I understand, getting their hands on uh, on medical equipment. So those are some basic things that we can start making some phone calls to our senators. And I think there's even like a website. If I remember right, it's like whosmyrep.com or something. I mean, it's just Google it. But it's really not hard to figure out like how to call your elected representatives. Just like Google, I think, who's my rep or find my rep. And then you'll see their phone number. Call them. They do answer the phone. I have done this. It's not just a theory. They will take down your name um, and where you're from. uh, And uh, you can deliver whatever message you want to. And just tell them that, look, you want uh, the refugees to be moved to the Greek mainland, especially the unaccompanied minors. And there are hundreds of them, children that have like made it onto these islands with nobody to look out for them living in these conditions. Just try to imagine. Um, So that's a start. Um, And also that we need to be forgiving the debts of these of the poorest countries um, and also lifting sanctions on other countries so that they can address their humanitarian needs. These are things that can be addressed fairly quickly. Um, so people just need to, yeah, make those phone calls. And if you're thinking, well, I'm not a European, what difference does it make? No, if you're listening to this in the U.S., you are in the one of the richest and most powerful countries on earth, and we have economic relationships with that community, with the European Union. Like uh, our, our elected representatives, you know, they might not be elected in European Parliament, but they have relationships across the Atlantic. Um, and we have influence over one another as economic trade partners, et cetera. So um, it's, it's worth making those calls. And uh, uh, when it comes to lifting sanctions, that's direct project of the U.S. You know, that is something that the U.S. can do something about the stroke of a pen, literally overnight. Another thing that people can do is... When it comes to just dealing with this like general like sense of apathy or like why should it, it doesn't matter to me or I don't even know anybody in these communities, it might not be as hard as you think it is to become acquainted with some of the communities that we've been talking about today. And, and that the U.S. is a country of immigrants, right? There are people who've been resettled from all over the world and communities all over the United States. I don't know about your background, but like, that's how part of my family came, man. They were refugees and they actually came over in a boat to Greece, <laughs> um, fleeing from genocide in Turkey, man, um, about 100 years ago before they came to the U.S. as refugees. Um, so, I mean, that was one of the things that tripped me out being there it was just this is like literally my family's story 100 years ago. Um, so find those communities, you know, figure out like what communities have been resettled in yours uh visit your local islamic center or mosque they'd be happy to meet you and i'm sure would be thrilled to see that you're curious instead of just suspicious of them and stop by bring your kids just ask them like when they're having another community event you know where you can share food and share stories that might not be possible right now and we're all under lockdown i can appreciate that but you know this is something you might be able to do virtually too You know, this might be something where like there's a lot that we can do in the age of the Internet that doesn't require us actually occupying the same space. Obviously, we're doing it right now, man. So maybe while we're all kind of sitting behind closed doors and like focusing on keeping our families safe, we can also be thinking about one another and reaching out to communities that we that we normally don't even when we're able to. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing that came out of all of this? 
is that we establish new connections in our own community that we might never have even thought about when we were actually out in the open and free to go and like greet them in person. But instead, we just kind of make it our project while we're under isolation. Start making some phone calls to like uh, centers that help with integrating refugees and immigrants. Con- uh, commu- I'm sorry, like uh, organizations that help with integrating refugees and immigrants. Call Islamic centers, call different religious centers and uh, seek out the different and work to make it more familiar for yourself and for your children. You know, let that be part of your legacy to them is that all of these things that might have like that you might recognize in yourself as kind of these unfortunate prejudices that you have. Your children don't need to inherit them. Give them an opportunity to be exposed to the things that you weren't in your life, you know, and obviously not pointing the finger at you, man. I'm saying like this is in general true of all of us. So that's another thing that you can do um, is just try and look for the different in your own community and also ask them, how are they helping their family members back home? You know, if you find Yemenis, if you find Iraqis, if you find Syrians and Afghans in your own community, ask them, hey, what's it like back home? Do you have any, I listened to this podcast. Do you have, like, do you know of any people from your community who are in these camps? Like, is there anything that we can do to help? How are you communicating with them? Do you have any contact with them? What's the best way to, like, to make things better for them? Um, There are ways to, like, localize these issues that we're talking about. So they seem like... um, like something that you're more connected to and not something that's just a world away and is, is a bunch of headlines. Find the people in those communities that are in your own community is another big one. Yeah, that's uh that, but that takes getting out of yourself and out of your own way and, and, you know, wanting to, to know more about stuff like that, which is, whoo, you know, we, we takes a Google search, man. Yeah. It, takes a Google search. Does Google like, Islamic center or refugee resettlement program or whatever, get creative. And it's like, try and find Afghans in the Bay area. And if we can argue with perfect strangers on Facebook about nonsense, it takes just as much energy to like seek out uh, communities that can really use our help and could benefit from a little bit more of our curiosity. Same, same amount of effort, man. It's just a question of where you put your intention. No, you're right. You're right. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a master procrastinator. So immediately I start thinking about, I have to be finishing a podcast right now. I start thinking about, you know, the, the, the end instead of like, all right, well, what's it going to take just to start it? Yeah. Just one, just like you said in the beginning, man, it's one foot in front of the other. Like we trip ourselves up a lot of times in life, just thinking like, this is insurmountable. Like I'm not qualified. I don't even know how to speak this language. I don't know anything about this culture. I'm going to look stupid. Um, there's probably somebody else who like knows more than I do. That's already doing something like this already. Yeah. Somebody else has probably got this handled. I don't need to do it. And then nobody does anything instead of, I don't care if I look stupid. Um, I want my, my kid or my community to have the benefit of like more exposure to this issue. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that they get that. And if I heart's in the right place, then I'm going to trust that it's going to be received in that manner and that people will just be happy to meet me and to educate me. And maybe they'll learn something about my community too. And from that, we can create more relationships. You know, that's it. That's it. Like just all you need, man, is your heart in the right place. That's it. I don't, I, I hope mine's in the right place and I don't know that I have much else going for me. You know, I'm an amateur at everything I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah, That's a great way to look at it. So why don't you go ahead and uh, 
and and plug yourself uh you know your podcast uh any anything that you're working on that you uh may want in the show notes and how we can help you sure uh, so my podcast is called Latitude Adjustment, and the website is latitudeadjustmentpod.com. And if you want to learn more about how you can get involved with some of the things that we've discussed today, you know, with the refugee situation in Europe and in the Middle East, I also started an admin uh, Facebook group called Refugee Relief Action Forum. And it's one of many that are out there, but it just happens to be the one that, that I admin for. And if you're just like, I don't, wouldn't even know how to start doing this. Where do I begin? Go there. Just go to this Facebook group, <laughs> Refugee Relief Action Forum. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a small community, but, uh, but enough people there to where if you ask uh, questions, you'll probably get the answers you're looking for. Um, and yeah, what else? I would just ask your community to take some of the steps that I've suggested, you know, like challenge yourself to do something different today to disrupt your accustomed pattern of behavior and to get a little bit outside of your comfort zone. And you'll feel better about yourself if you're doing it for someone other than yourself. I think everybody knows that intuitively that that's true. You know, if you're making yourself uncomfortable in the name of doing something noble, there doesn't need to be any embarrassment in it. You know, if, if you fall flat on your face, um, bragging about yourself, that's one thing. But like if you make some missteps, but, you're, but your intentions are pure, then it's on somebody else, man. If they take issue with it, who cares? Um, but nothing's going to change until we do that. Our communities are going to stay insular. We're going to stay polarized as a nation, as a planet. Um, and the, the mistrust that breeds um, fear and then hostility and then violence is, is going to continue to incubate and, and grow. Like it's on each of us. I, I really mean that. Like we can, we can point toward the media for being manipulative or the corporations that own the media for manipulating the media or the politicians for their role and all of it. But at the end of the day, like the power does reside with us. It's just if each of us continues to defer our responsibility and sees ourselves as being insignificant and powerless, we will remain that way. You know, but if, if each one of us individually decides to like take a step in the direction that we want the world to be headed in and other people start to see that and it becomes a trend, things can change very quickly. I think at a pace it would shock many of us. Yeah, hopefully we're at a place uh, with with everybody being able to take the time to reflect, uh, you know, with with our current situations, um, you know, reaching out uh, beyond, you know, it, however we are right now. Like I've been doing some Zoom uh, chats with people, family members, you know, all of us get together on Zoom, all host it, um, you know, and and finding ways to connect. And I think, I think the world was just, we were, we were getting so busy that connection, you know, in anything other than your routine day to day functions has been non-existent, you know? So we, and I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that the, uh, that the media or, or anybody is responsible for that, or it's being driven or manufactured in, in some way. Uh, you know, cause that, that's my first instinct is to go that route instead of just like, you know, Hey, maybe it's just on everybody because we just, 
we've got these new devices. We've got all these other things to occupy our, our time and our, and our energy and our efforts that we, you know, haven't really looked at it. But now, I mean, you know, I, I feel like I've, I've looked at it quite a bit now, you know, being what, well, going on two weeks here, uh, quarantine and, and how I can make a difference in, in, in what I can do. So, uh, thank you like again for everything that you do. And the one thing that you didn't, is there any way that we can help you in your efforts and your show? Uh, like, do you have a Patreon? Do you have a, you know, direct yeah, uh, support, uh, the link on your page? Yeah. I mean, I, I want to use this occasion today to direct people to help people who really need it right now. You know, um, I mean, I've got my struggles like anybody else, but I'm also lucky to have like a, a gig that's online so that I can pay my bills. Um, so I do have a Patreon. People can find it by going to my website, but uh, I would say I would encourage people to look at how they can help some of the people in their community that maybe are losing their jobs, you know, or that are like independent contractors or freelancers that like don't have something to fall back on. Um, that would be one thing, you know, Obviously, I want to encourage people to contribute to some of these uh, humanitarian organizations that are helping refugees, of course, and they're abundant. And if you go to my website and look at some of the recent episodes, you'll see links to those organizations that you can help. Um, so it's just right there. Go to latitudeadjustmentpod.com, go to the podcast page and look at my most recent episode. And there's like at least I think half a dozen organizations you can donate to. And then I would encourage people to also look after, look after your own and your own community. You know, I've seen some some pretty amazing stuff, even in like the online forum where like there's a page for one podcast. Um, it's like a, a fan page for one podcast that I follow. And somebody just posted who here is hurting. Like who here is hurting financially? I look at everybody in this like fan group is like a family member. And some of us, you know, are doing all right right now because we work online and we know that some of you aren't. Like uh, let's communicate with one another and see how we can lift each other up. That was like pretty moving to see that. Um, so yeah, if I'm, if I'm going to direct people to support, I would say those things, you know, like look, look after those who, who really need it. Yeah. All right. That's great, man. I think it's a good point to end on. Uh, Eric, mm -hmm. I appreciate uh, everything that you're doing, like I said, uh, and also making the time to uh, make this happen again and giving our, uh, our, my, our, the show's listeners, uh, uh, update on, on where you are. Sean, thank you, man. Thank you for the opportunity. And, um, I really appreciate that you've like, yeah, that you continue to give me a platform to talk about some of the things that I really care about, man. I appreciate where your heart is at. Thank you, man. I, I appreciate you as well. And this won't, this isn't the last one. We'll be talking again at some point down the road as well. Cool, man. Thanks, Eric. Have a good one, brother. Right. You too. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show and thanks Eric for checking in with us and uh you know letting us into your your journey and 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 what you're doing and continuing that's that fight to bring information to the people that aren't following news sources that aren't covering it. As always, his information will be in the show notes as well as all of the links for the ads with the merchandise page, uh Patreon, you know, Linktree all that stuff will be in the show notes. Like I said before, if you want to 
support the show, the easiest way is to rate and review. The most simplest way that doesn't require much effort. If you want to go a step further than that, then you can head on over to my link tree, go to the merchandise page and uh, do some shopping. And a portion of that will go to the show and help support what we're doing here. Uh, and then at some point, like I said, Patreon will be up and you'll be able to go there as well. And there'll be a number of different uh, perks uh, as a Patreon patron and somebody who's uh, signed on to be a part of that community. Our next episode that's coming out, this one's going to be a pretty good one. I, The way it came about was kind of, kind of strange, but uh, I interviewed three people gentlemen that are currently serving time in uh, a penitentiary somewhere in the country have no idea didn't ask didn't want to know but i know that they were they are where they say they were um let's just we'll leave it at that and uh yeah it's a it was a pretty good interview this is one you're probably not going to want to miss so that'll be the next one coming out anyways hopefully everybody's sheltering in place, you know, social distancing, keep, keep it up. We're not quite out of this yet. Uh, I really don't think we're going to be out of it until at least June, June 1st, but you never know. And I'm talking about California. I don't know what your situation is. Everybody else, everybody's in a different uh, point in, in the, uh, in the cycle. So, uh, I'm, that's what I'm looking for. So I'm just going to keep on trying to, uh, push out episodes as many as I can, uh, until this thing is over so I can try and l- at least, you know, get up to about between seven and 10,000 uh, downloads. So we're at almost 3,000 right now. So seven is 4,000 more downloads and uh, seven would be 10,000. So that's the ultimate goal right now. 10,000 downloads. That's what I'm searching for. So if you have somebody who, you know, would benefit from listening to this show, you know, send them over this way. And, uh, you know, give us a word of mouth, uh, nudge to somebody, let your friends know about the show and, uh, yeah. And I appreciate it. So until next time, keep it 100, stay true to yourself. Everything else is just noise. Uh